Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. 
Hi, hello, nerds. Well, well, well. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am that host of yours, that one with the capital O, Opinions, Liv. Now, this is an odd introduction to be writing and recording, honestly, because to all of you, well, I was just in your ears a few days ago with new episodes, but to me, well, I haven't written or recorded anything for the podcast in over two months. Except for that little blip introduction to that last-minute re-air that I had to do. But truly, this is the weirdest feeling and absolutely the longest I've ever gone without creating new content in the entire five years of this podcast. (laughs) It's been a trip, literally, because I've been in Greece. You get it? Have I lost my skill for humor in all of this time without writing episodes? It's possible. Let's see. Obviously, I have been sharing lots about my travels through Greece on my Instagram and Twitter, but I do also hope to do something soon. Something more detailed, not totally sure what yet. (laughs) Definitely something for my Patreon patrons, and definitely something featuring the loads and loads of pictures that I've taken. But again, no idea what yet. I took about a zillion photos that I will use somehow. But for now... I am just back with a new episode of the podcast. Now, I've been running a survey to help me figure out what kind of new merch to create and generally asking what you all love about the podcast. Full disclosure, I've had some setbacks in the podcasting department lately. Things are super stressful, plummeting downloads that have no explanation because all of you are still emailing me and messaging me all the time with how much you love it, but practical things that affect, you know, the business side of the show, i.e. the side that pays my rent. Not stressful at all. But what I learned in that survey is that, unsurprisingly, one of your favorite topics for this show is one of my favorite topics for this show, Theseus. I'm sure I know why. He's a wildly enormous dick, and it is incredibly fun to detail the ways in which he is a wildly enormous dick. It's entertaining and bizarre, and just like, man, how can one guy do so many awful things, right? I mean, honestly, it's impressive. And I've just been in his city, Athens, where a metro station and a neighborhood is named for him, and a statue of him resides there. So what better a time to revisit that so-called hero, that king of Athens, and the parts of his story that I haven't told you yet. Obviously, I've talked about him so, so much on the show, but there are a couple of stories that I haven't gotten into, if you can believe it, and specifically one bit that I only really hinted at at the end of that deep dive of episodes I did a couple years ago, the story of him as an actual Athenian politician, the so-called founder of their city of democracy, and most importantly, the story of his death. Because yes, we do have stories around Theseus's death, and man, is it nothing like the tragic, memorable, ancient Greek tragedy-worthy death of the hero Heracles? That one made for such an incredible podcast series, the Trachinii. Whereas this, it is Theseus after all. This is episode 171, Mythology Meets History, 
Theseus as an Athenian politician and generally awful guy. Theseus, Theseus, Theseus. There's a reason he's all of our favorites when it comes to episodes of the show that involves absurd levels of entertainment, and it's not because he was a cool guy who you'd want to hang out with. In fact, I think it's safe to say that not just women, but people of all genders would have tried to stay far, far away from Theseus, given the opportunity. Instead, what's fascinating is how his history was told and developed and what it actually meant for not only mythology, but history too, because he lines up with history in a way that very few, if any, other Greek mythological characters do. And before we dive into those last years of his life, him as a politician, what it all meant for real-world Athenian history let alone the city's mythology, let's just recap what makes Theseus Theseus. Obviously, I just want an excuse to lay out my very sound argument that Theseus is the absolute worst, yes, worse than Jason. Theseus was born in treason to a woman named Ethra. Because this is Greek mythology and the foundation myth of both a hero and a city... The child Ethra gave birth to had uh, two possible fathers. Or maybe they were both his father in different ways? Don't worry about biology. On the night that Ethra became pregnant with young Theseus, she had sex with her father's friend Aegeus. And then she had sex with Poseidon when she went down to the water later that night. Or maybe before. Doesn't matter. Now, unfortunately, we aren't clear on how Ethra actually felt about any of this. Were either of these encounters consensual? Both, maybe? Tough to say. I want to say we can safely assume that Poseidon, that the Poseidon bit, uh, wasn't, because it rarely is with him, and I don't think heading down to the water one evening is necessarily a consent to sex with a god. Regardless of Ethra's thoughts and feelings, though, she did indeed become pregnant and eventually gave birth to Theseus. By that time, Aegeus had already returned home to Attica, where he was the king of an early city of Athens. Aegeus had left with simple instructions. If the child is a boy, and only if he is a boy, let him test himself. Aegeus hid sandals and a sword beneath a heavy stone, and if the boy could lift it and retrieve the items, well, awesome. Then he was welcome to come and see his father in Athens. If not, he can forget about his lineage and live a life of obscurity. Lovely father and son relationship, as always. Of course, Theseus passes the test and he gets these items and he sets off for Athens. And on the road, he kills a bunch of dudes we're to believe were terrorizing the path between the two cities, specifically the Isthmus of Corinth, which is a very narrow passage of land that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula with mainland Greece. A convenient spot for banditry, to be sure. If you want to hear me theorize that actually Theseus is just a serial killer, go ahead and listen to my past episode on that bit of his story. I've linked the series of Theseus in this episode's description because, man, was that series fun. Jumping ahead to Theseus's more famous exploits of shittiness, we all of course remember when he landed on the island of Crete in his quest to defeat the Minotaur and rid Athens of the obligation to sacrifice so many of their young people. But he couldn't defeat the Minotaur himself, couldn't even find the guy in his labyrinth. 
not without the help of the Princess Ariadne, who not only gave him thread to use to find his way through the labyrinth and back out again, but also probably gave him the weapon that he would use to kill the Minotaur. He would have been nothing without Ariadne. Sound familiar? I'm looking at you, Jason. And so... How did he thank Ariadne? Well, of course he promised to marry her and bring her back to Athens, where she would live with him as his queen. It sounds like a nice promise, right? Ariadne was pretty excited. Her father, Minos, was tyrannical, and she was absolutely psyched to be able to leave Crete for Athens, for a prince that she believed loved her. And, ugh, wasn't he handsome? Mm. Anyway, instead of following through on that promise, when Theseus and Ariadne landed on the island of Naxos to take a break from their sailing, Ariadne lay down to take a little snooze. And when she fell asleep, Theseus took the opportunity to uh, sail right on out of there, abandoning her on the island to, you know, die, probably. Fortunately, she found a god to marry instead, but that doesn't get Theseus off the hook. Ugh, Theseus. So, so far he's murdered a ton of human men, more than any other hero in Greek mythology. He's only defeated one monster and one bull, which I neglected to mention, but you remember. He defeated the Marathonian bull and paraded it through the city, making a real show of it. And then, well, he abandoned Ariadne on an island and went on his merry way. On his merry way to Athens, where he obviously so famously forgot to change the color of his sails like he had promised his father the indication that he hadn't been killed by the Minotaur and was returning victorious, something his father was watching for ardently on the cliffs of Sunyan, the southern tip of Attica, waiting patiently to see those white sails and to know that his son was alive and safe. But Theseus is a forgetful asshole who didn't change his sails, and so when his father saw the sails still black, he was heartbroken and threw himself off the cliffs of Sunyan where he fell to his death, and gave the sea its name, the Aegean. And yes, I've been to Sunyan. There's a stunning temple of Poseidon there that links up with this myth, and it's gorgeous. Travel stories and photos still to come, because I also visited Naxos and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. <sighs> but that's just the beginning of Theseus's awfulness. I promise I'm trying not to spend too, there are this entire episode recapping it, but it's too fun. There are too many bad things that he did. We must remember them all in order to understand just how much he deserved his shitty fate. From here, Theseus goes on to abduct one of the Amazons, Antiope. He attacks the Amazons, abducts Antiope, and brings her back to Athens where he installs her as his very unwilling wife. Lovely. I know. Fortunately, the Amazons say absolutely the fuck not to that, and they attack Athens, forcing the Athenians into a big old battle with Amazons, which, fine, they do eventually lose. The Amazons, that is. Antiope's fate is less clear, but she does give birth to a son by Theseus, Hippolytus, who is sent to be raised in treason. More time passes, and once more Theseus is looking for a wife. You know, because it's gone so well for women like Ariadne and Antiope. Just great relationships. He's a good guy. This time, though, he's looking for a political match. 
As a means of finalizing a peace with Minos and the island of Crete, Theseus is set to marry Ariadne's younger sister, the princess of Crete, Phaedra. The remaining princess of Crete, Phaedra. And they do marry, the age difference being uh, quite a bit. And Phaedra moves to Athens as Theseus's wife, where, well, some things happen with Hippolytus, his son by Antiope, but that's a play for another day. The end result, though, is that Phaedra dies, and once more Theseus is without a wife because he's a mess of a human and an overall awful person. And this is where I'll remind you of his friendship with a man named Pirithous, who is, arguably, worse even than Theseus. Or maybe just bolder? Not worse. Chronologically now, this is all tricky, but according to some, this is the point in Theseus's life where he's reunited with this friend, Pirithous, for a very specific reason. The two men are older now. So much time has passed. Theseus is like 50. He's a 50-year-old man. Just let that sink in. It's important. He is 50. He's 50, and his friend Pirithous comes to town and is just like, Hey, dude, we're both single. Let's say we make a bit of a game out of it, trying to find ourselves new wives. Theseus is into the idea, obviously. Why wouldn't he want a game to find his, I mean, I guess only third wife? <laughs> Ariadne still counts for something, though, you know? What's the game, you ask, as if you don't remember? Well, Pirithous says, Let's kidnap ourselves some daughters of Zeus. Yeah. Good idea, Pirithous. Theseus sure thinks so, though, and he picks for his daughter of Zeus, the well-established, most beautiful woman in the world, except she's not a woman yet. This is early in her story, Helen's story, and the girl who will become the most beautiful woman on Earth is, right now, at the youngest, nine years old, and at the very oldest, the oldest. She's 12. Theseus intends to abduct a 9- or 12-year-old girl who will become his wife. But don't worry, he realizes she's a bit young, so he's gonna have her uh, hang out in a palace for a while until she's, I don't know, 13, let's say? That's old enough for a 50-year-old man. This episode is off the rails. Welcome back to reality, me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kind of suppressing a gag. But it's fine. Theseus will find it easy to wait until she's older, because the woman that Pirithous picks to abduct is a, a bit trickier. He's interested in the daughter of Zeus that just happens to also be, I don't know, the queen of the underworld. The wife of the god of the dead. The dread goddess Persephone. Chill. Totally chill. Perfect idea, Pirithous. That's definitely going to go so well for you. It doesn't, of course, and the two men are found out and captured by the gods of the underworld, forced to sit in stone chairs trapped for eternity. Or at least until Heracles comes around and rescues Theseus from his imprisonment. Not Pirithous, though. He's going to stay there for life for his dumbass idea. And here, finally, finally, is when Theseus seems to decide to become a more serious ruler of Athens rather than a man who seems hellbent on doing the most horrible and violent things at all times. Just time and time again, just for the sake of it. Either that actually happens, or, you know, the Athenians just decided to change up their propaganda and present the idea that their most important king might have actually done some half-decent stuff for the city. But don't worry, they won't be specific about it. 
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Aside from his endless escapades... I find Theseus to be the most interesting hero because of the role he played in the real world, rather than the mythological one. 
Theseus is almost unique in this way. It's very in the vein of Aeneas later in the, for the Romans because he is both an ancient hero and an invention of archaic or even sometimes classical Athens as an attempt to solidify the Athenians as this most important city-state in the Greek world. Theseus appears briefly in Homer, apparently. I needed to double-check that, and I didn't. But not in a way that suggests his stories predate Homer, just his name and a couple of anecdotes, specifically relating to Pirithus, which suggests it's Pirithus who might be more ancient. Instead, much of Theseus' story is developed in Athens, not always as intentional propaganda, but more so out of a desire for this newer city to establish itself in the hierarchy of mythology. This is why Theseus, though a later character, is inserted into important bits of mythology. He's a cousin of Heracles, and Heracles saves him from the underworld. He's connected with the Minoans of Crete, a people that the Athenians knew were much, much, much more ancient and important than they were, and certainly anything else in their region. He abducted an Amazon, another ode to Heracles and these super ancient stories. And that story is even directly linked to Heracles sometimes, where Theseus accompanies him on his labor to steal Hippolyta's belt, and that's when Theseus abducts Antiope. And then he's even sometimes added to the names of those who sailed with Jason on the Argo. The Athenians basically just retconned Theseus into all the ancient myths, myths that weren't connected to with the glory of any particular city-state originally, but the glory of the Greek people more broadly. Stories that were so ancient that they were just disconnected from real places of archaic and classical Greece, like the works of Homer. By nudging Theseus into all these stories, they established themselves as being as ancient as all of that, and their city's hero is established as being associated with some of the most important and famous bits of Greek mythological history. But at the same time as all of this, Athens is also establishing a different bit of history for Theseus, one that relates to the city itself rather than their broader history of mythology of the Greeks. They establish him as a, a kind of founder or precursor to Athenian democracy. They take him on as their first king, I'll explain, their first politician, their true founder. Now, this is something I've mentioned in the past, but didn't totally understand because Aegeus is a king of Athens, but I now get it. So let's get into it. Theseus is seen as the first king of Athens, but also his father Aegeus was a king of Athens. How does that work? Well, the Athens of Aegeus was a smaller Athens, like a little local city where the king ruled over just this small city itself, nothing surrounding it. He wasn't an important king nor a ruler of any large or established place in the region. He kind of serves like many of the rulers in, say, Homeric epic, where we have this endless list of all of these cities that have their kings that traveled to Troy, but they're just random names. This was a time period, and a historical one at that, where rulers ruled over just their immediate surrounding areas. They usually took power rather than gaining it via any kind of birthright. And then when these bits of the story of Theseus are specifically being developed, 
This past idea of kings were seen as tyrannical, as something the Athenians had gotten themselves out of. And Theseus, meanwhile, in this mythological origin of Athens, is the first king to of the larger, broader sense of Athens, being the larger region of Attica generally. Theseus is said to have abolished smaller local governments, kings, rulers of the various little regions surrounding Athens and Attica, and established them under his sort of overarching rule from the center in Athens. Basically, Athens had become this powerhouse in the region, and they wanted to solidify that into the broader context of shared mythology. There's so much more history behind this, like Athenian history that I won't try to explain to you, like generations of varying types of kings with varying levels of success and tyrannies and a slow progression to a different style of rulership that eventually would lead into their version of democracy. But gods know that bit of history is not my specialty. I just want to explain how Theseus links up with the real world history of Athens, because it's fascinating. He becomes this important mythological political figure, this concept that embodies hundreds of years of changes and growth development in Athenian politics, all distilled into this one man who they understood as having unified a region and laid the groundwork for democracy, at least in their mythological history. They did recognize the difference. Theseus is so often called the father of democracy. He's often referenced as this mythological founder of the notion in general. But honestly, I've searched and searched. I can't find any source that explains how that link is made. Through his political myths, we can gather that the Athenians saw him as having united the region under his central control in Athens. They believed him to have been a good and just king and his rule and hey, maybe he was. It's only women he married or promised to marry that took the brunt of his awfulness. This idea of Theseus had a real resurgence during the 5th century BCE, when Solon was himself laying like literal foundations of democracy that would be solidified later, more directly, Pericles' times. And Theseus just seems to kind of link to all of it without there being any kind of like Real source describing him as having established anything other than monarchic rule, even in Athenian mythology. So I don't really get the link to democracy, but it is said a lot. <laughs> and then, finally, then we get to his downfall. Something that in itself seems antithetical to the story of him as this great founder of Athens, this ruler who brought the region together, who ruled well and justly who was beloved, because the story of his downfall, while lacking much in the way of ancient Athenian sources, essentially has him being exiled from Athens, which then fell under control of a king called Menestheus. So Theseus was, later in his life, exiled from Athens. But why? Well, once again, we get to talk about how most of Theseus's actions are objectively bad, 
no matter how heroic he is seen to have been or how great a founder he was for Athens, because the reason that Theseus is eventually exiled is because of the ramifications of two of his poorer decisions. The time he abducted Antiope and the time he abducted Helen. It's almost like if he hadn't gone around abducting women with abandon, then maybe he would have actually founded democracy. Or, you know, not been exiled by the city he fucking founded and was revered for. It's almost like abducting women and very, very young girls was bad even in the context of Greek myth. Just don't tell the angry men who like to give me one-star reviews. That'll really throw a wrench in their arguments. So, you see, when Theseus first abducted Antiope, like I mentioned, the Amazons waged a war against Athens. It's one of their most famous wars, depicted in the frieze on the Parthenon and in enough pieces of art to rival Heracles himself. The battle between Athens and the Amazons, the Amazonomachy, was big fucking news. Because the Amazons pretty much laid waste to Athens, and while they did eventually lose, it didn't come easily, and the war would go on to be remembered as one of the most famous things to have happened in Athens ever, mythologically speaking. And as much as it was eventually a win for Athens, it didn't make Theseus look very good. They wouldn't have had to contend with the Amazons, the most incredible and dangerous warriors of the ancient world, if Theseus hadn't kidnapped one of them on a whim. But still, while the Athenian people definitely saw the flaw in Theseus' thought processes when it comes to the Amazons, that wasn't enough to make him lose the goodwill of the people. That much was clinched on the second abduction. Because when Theseus abducted Helen, it wasn't just about abducting, you know, any old nine or 12 year old. This was Helen of Sparta, a daughter of Zeus, a princess of Sparta, and she had brothers. Brothers who were also, at least half, the children of Zeus. The twins, Castor and Polydeuces, the famous Dioscuri. And they did not take their sister's abduction well. In fact, they, like the Amazons, waged an epic war against Athens for Theseus's actions. Once again, the Athenian people were being attacked, killed, their homes destroyed because of an objectively bad decision made by their king. He'd decided he wanted to marry a child. He'd stolen her from her home in the dead of night and the people of Athens had paid the price. And worse, according to most tellings of the story, Theseus wasn't even in Athens to defend the city from this attack, unlike when it came to the Amazons. And why? Because he was locked away in the underworld, having tried to help his friend abduct yet another woman. So the Athenians fought and died for Theseus's mistake, and he wasn't even there to help them. And that's what really finalized it in the end. They recognized that for all the good they believed him to have done, it didn't outweigh the destruction that had been wrought on their city because of his decision-making. So, this man named Menestheus came up against Theseus and, we're to believe, with the will of the people, he exiled Theseus from the city that he had founded. 
that he had united, that he would go on to become so, so, so famously heroic for. Maybe that's the democracy of it all, that Menestheus worked with the people, the demos of Athens, in order to exile Theseus. Bit ironic, isn't it? Father of democracy, indeed. In his exile, it's said that Theseus sent his remaining children, those he had with Phaedra, to the island of Euboea, modern Evia, and he himself went to Skyros, where he stayed with a man named Lycomedes. And in the end, it all came down to a combination of Theseus and a cliffside on Skyros. Either he fell, a horrible accident, or Lycomedes uh, kicked him off the cliff, having decided to side with Menestheus. That version is, is obviously my preference. After all his shit, the good things he did for Athens, the horrible things he did for literally everyone else, it all came down to him being kicked off a cliff by some random guy. Piecing together the last bits of Theseus' story is fascinating and has lots of fascinating connections to the history of Athens and Homeric epic, too. For instance, where did Menestheus come in? Theseus' end, his exile at the hands of Menestheus, feels a bit tacked on, and it's very possible that that's exactly what it is. See, in the Iliad, Athens is only mentioned once in passing, in the Catalog of Ships. That is the epically long passage that lists every ship that traveled to Troy, where it was from, who led it, and probably who that guy's father was, too. Athens, you see, was led by Menestheus. So, because most of Theseus' story, and certainly his entire connection to the founding of Athens, chronologically is retconned as to having come before the stories of Homer which were, of course, very, very famous, the Athenians would also have probably wanted to make this connection more explicit. This connection between the modern Athens, which was big and powerful, and the Athens of the Iliad, which was kind of nothing. They would have wanted to make sure that their mythological history of Theseus and his epic actions made the same connections that Homer did, because that would make them far more legitimate in the grand history of Greece. Because Homeric epic was about the most legitimate and important shared history that they had. So, we get this inclusion of Menestheus, and this explanation for why he was leading Athens after Theseus. Because, of course, again, since Helen was said to have been 9 or 12 when Theseus abducted her, that means the Trojan War is probably about a decade or so in the future. Hence this need for Menestheus. It's this way of making sure that Theseus is thought to have been just as important as at the time of Homeric epic, even though he's like not in it. He is maybe mentioned, but he's not linked to Athens in that. He's just some guy. Whereas later, hundreds of years later, they want to establish him as this incredibly important figure, which inherently, in order for you to be incredibly important in the realm of Greek mythology, you have to have ties to the Iliad, or the Odyssey. You have to have ties to Homer. 
I find these bits so fascinating. I really hope you all do too. This is what I live for. These ways that we can literally see the thought processes behind establishing the myth. The way they explain something either historical or mythological, the way we can connect to the stories, connect them to the very real people living in the regions that were telling the stories. Fucking love it. This is what I identify with most in these works. Not so much the narrative of the story themselves, but understanding how it came to be and why. And guess what? I'm not even done with the history yet. Because, well... Theseus, for all his faults and his exile, was, as I have said countless times already, an incredibly important pseudo-historical figure for ancient Athens. That, that is, there was this idea that maybe he was historical, their actual founder. He was so very important that when Athens was rebuilding after the Persian Wars, looking to shore up their security, ensure that they wouldn't be hit like that again, because remember, the they sacked the whole Acropolis. Plutarch says that they visited the Oracle for guidance, how to prevent a war like that from happening again. Now, this is recounted in Plutarch, so it's very late, as he was from the Roman period, but it does give us some insights into the understanding of Theseus as a founder by the people of the very real and not mythological Athens. I'm going to finish this episode by just quoting this bit from Plutarch, the final passage of his life of Theseus. And after the Median Wars, in the archonship of Phaedo, when the Athenians were consulting the oracle at Delphi, they were told by the Pythian priestess to take up the bones of Theseus, give them honorable burial at Athens, and guard them there. But it was difficult to find the grave and take up the bones because of the inhospitable and savage nature of the Dolopians, who then inhabited the island. However, Chimon took the island, as I have related in his life, and being ambitious to discover the grave of Theseus, saw an eagle in a place where there was a semblance of a mound, pecking, as they say, and tearing up the ground with its talons. By some divine ordering, he comprehended the meaning of this and dug there. And there he found a coffin of a man of extraordinary size, a bronze spear lying by his side, and a sword. When these relics were brought home on his trireme by Chimon, the Athenians were delighted and received them with splendid processions and sacrifices, as though Theseus himself were returning to his city. And now he lies buried in the heart of the city near the present gymnasium, and his tomb is a sanctuary and place of refuge for runaway slaves and all men of low estate who are afraid of men in power since Theseus was a champion and helper of such during his life, and graciously received the supplications of the poor and the needy. Isn't that incredible? That's a historical account, or said to be historical. That they found his body, his bones, and that they were gigantic. So in the end, what was Theseus to the Athenians? He was their hero, their founder, the person they saw as helpful towards the less fortunate, those lacking in power. 
and yet he was exiled for causing destruction upon the city. He died a lowly, embarrassing death away from Athens. Or did that notion come later? If it did, if he wasn't seen as being exiled in the most heroic and important stories of Athens, then how did they account for him being buried on Skyros? Uh, Theseus, for all his faults and very, very bad and violent decisions, is an enigma in the most interesting way. What was he to ancient Athens? And what was he not? Did they judge his decisions or did they see him only as their hero founder? He may have been an absolutely dangerous shithead, but at least he's left us with some incredibly entertaining stories and fascinatingly open-ended questions. Ugh, nerds, thank you so much for listening to this. I know I got into the weeds. I do love the history and the way it all connects to so many different things. What a rambly first episode back from my epic trip to Greece. I'll admit I chose Theseus for today's episode because I wanted to ease myself back into writing scripts with a character that I'm always keen to talk about, and one that you all seem to love hearing about. Theseus is just so, so much. He's just so easy to make fun of, to gawk at his absolutely horrific and awful decisions. But there's also so much to him when it comes to history and its ties to mythology, to the fascinating nature of Athenian mythology. Athens was so, so powerful by that point, but it was also far less ancient than a lot of other regions. And that means their direct city mythology is recent comparatively, but also it overtook other mythology in interesting ways. Like, Theseus is so, so much more famous than, say, Cadmus, even though they both founded cities and Cadmus's story is much older. I just, I love it. Particularly, I love seeing these links to history and being able to ask and answer questions about how he was seen and understood and also having questions that can never be answered. Well, safe to say I still fucking love Greek mythology, even after two months gallivanting around that very real country of Greece. I also still love feta and olives. You are all so fucking awesome. Thank you for listening, for telling your friends, for posting about the show on social media, for tweeting at me and sending me DMs and sharing Instagram stories about the show. It all means so, so much to me. And I just couldn't be more grateful for how you all help me have this career and live this life. Thank you. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Grace Roby is our intern, helping keep me young with the merch planning and TikTok. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and I absolutely love you all for helping me share my absurdly enormous love for this shit. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. 
This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> 